Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pod 2112, the official podcast of the 2112 Group, where we talk with industry executives and thought leaders about the trends and the issues impacting the IT channel and the world around us. As always, I'm your host, Larry Walsh. Um, so we're recording this podcast on June 2nd, and I typically don't give the date of our recordings because I want these episodes to be evergreen. You can listen to them whenever you want to. Uh, they're intended to be thought-provoking and educational, but circumstances dictate that we actually tell you what time it is, what day it is. Um, as we speak, there's a lot of turmoil uh, tearing the U.S. apart. It's been a week since the George, George Floyd uh, murder in uh, Minnesota, and there are protests and riots and a lot of disruption causes in the aftermath of that sense. And um, why am I even bringing this up? Uh, because also today on June 2nd, uh, Cisco did something extraordinary, which is they had already been forced to change their annual Cisco live event from a live in-person event to a digital event. It was supposed to start today and they've canceled it. They'll bring it back in a couple of weeks, they say, um, because of the unrest. And Chuck Robbins, to his credit, uh, actually said, he goes, we need some space to comprehend what's happening to heal. Um, and that's part of the reason why we have our guest here today is because it's an extension of a topic he and I had already talked about doing on this podcast, which is about humanization, or as he calls it, extreme humanization. If you recall, last year, we had Liz Cope, who was then at Ingersoll Rand, and now a trained, talking about automation, the humanization, that we could use technology to become more human, to, to actually create more time to talk with people. Um, and Tom, who you know, I'll tell you a little bit more about him, but if you don't know who he is, and I hope you do know who he is, but Tom has this idea of extreme humanization that because of the COVID pandemic, we've been separated and we need to find ways to come closer together And technology is a part of that. We've been using technologies to stay connected, but extreme humanization now takes on a different context amid all this this violence and protest and the need for more social justice is that we need to become more human and we need to understand what the qualities of leadership are. And that is exactly what we're going to talk about here today, because as technology people and as business leaders, it is incumbent upon us to take a stance and to help with this process. And I can't think of anyone better to have this conversation with than, than, the impeccable, the incomparable Tom Peters, who, you know, he, I have to say, and I'll say it again, Tom, you've heard me say this, is that, you know, I was the the teenage geek who, of one of my heroes was Tom Peters, and your book In Search of Excellence inspired me for a lot of the things that shaped my professional life. He's also written, you know, books like A Passion for Excellence and Thriving in Chaos, and, you know, in 2018, when he first appeared on this podcast, he just released the Excellence Dividend, and there's many others. But, you know, Tom, you know, you really are a, a thought leader, and you are actively engaged in this conversation. So, you know, please welcome back to Pod 2112. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you and I, um, you were prepping for this episode, and you're talking about, you know, your own experience and where you live in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Why don't we start there? Yes, I'd very much like to do that. First of all, thanks for inviting me back. Uh, you did annoy me a little bit in the introduction. When I was a teenager, I was reading your book, and I wrote—I was forty when the book came out. You know, I don't need. The good news is you—you you, you know—you got a lot of gray, so you can't quite play the. Uh, well, 
Well, let's let me. Okay, true confession. I was nineteen, so I mean, oh, I was I was in the army. Barely, I was nineteen, yeah. yeah. So I was still a teenager, technically. Right. Well, I lived in Silicon Valley, thinking of our tech audience for basically thirty years. Um, and when things started getting crowded, and because I was always on the road as a speaker, I didn't need to be anywhere. I moved to Vermont and to a farm and then my wife and I moved away from the farm four years ago and we are on which you well know because of your own background we are on what's known as the south coast of Massachusetts uh, one translation of that is 68 and a half miles south of uh, Boston uh, but more most important for this little piece of our conversation we are 11 miles from New Bedford and some people know a lot about it and some people won't. New Bedford, a jillion years ago, was the wealthiest town in America. And that was because we hadn't found petroleum and whale oil was the basis for every street light, et cetera, et cetera. Oil is found in Pennsylvania. Oil market goes to hell. Sorry, whale oil market goes to hell as soon as that happens. Lo and behold, there's another resurrection and New Bedford becomes a huge textile town. And then that went out the window when all the textile companies for cheaper labor started moving to the south. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful town, and it's also pretty beaten up. We have a huge drug problem to the point that the DEA gave us some special designation that you don't want. But what I'm saying is New Bedford will mean something to somebody, somebody something else. There are 90,000 people. It's not a small town. We've had, we've had protests. Uh, how do you deal with the protest? Well, I, I, our local paper, which is called the Standard Times, I read it this morning, and I almost wept. Uh, there were some protests that started. The police chief, unadorned with flak jackets, and excuse my language, or any of that crap which distances you from your your, uh, you know, the people on the street, he goes out and chats with them. And he said, look, we totally support the reasons you're protesting. Because the, what happened last week with that murder is totally unacceptable. Uh, he said, let me tell you that. And we totally support your, your uh, right to march and walk and scream and whatever else. At which point, he goes down on his knee himself, uh, which is pretty extraordinary. And then, again, there were police around, obviously, and then he walks with the protesters. And he said, one thing I want to tell you is he said, my police force isn't perfect. And he said, if any of my people uh, misbehave in a way that you find inappropriate, you tell me. I want to hear about it said, you know, not all my guys are totally happy about it, but I, you know, this is really important to me. He says, it's important for our police department. We are, we are a part of our community. Uh, it is important that we be on the same side. Holy moly. And, and I kind of saw the same thing, and I remember the whole story, but three or four days ago, I saw a picture of the woman who was the Atlanta police chief, and she wasn't, you know, she's on the streets. There are a lot of people on the streets. She wasn't in a flak jacket. It's it's all about community and it's all about engagement. And of course, relative to COVID-19 and the way certain companies are behaving and certain other companies are behaving, 
I mean, I'm a bad guy, I guess, because I didn't have the word community per se in my vocabulary as much as I wish I had. And when I started thinking about this COVID thing in particular, uh, every organization is first and foremost a community. It's a community of you and your colleagues. It is a community of you and your colleagues and your subcontractors at the other side of the world. It is a community of you and your colleagues and your subcontractors, the communities in which you live and work, the communities of your vendors. You know, the, the, the way I like to talk, talk about a, a company, an organization, is I call it people serving people serving people. People called leaders serving the frontline people in their company and the frontline people in their company or organization. It could be a police department or anything else serving their customers. But, you know, two key words in there repeated three times, people service. Yeah. And yeah. why don't we behave that way more frequently? Why well, do we well, let's, let's go back a little bit though. Let's talk about the inspiration for extreme humanization is it the reason why we're even having this conversation is not because of the events in Minneapolis. It's because right. of, of a virus that's, that overwhelmed us, overwhelmed the, the overwhelmed the country, overwhelmed the world, uh, and disrupted businesses into the point of where you know. So those of you listening in, Tom and I are speaking via Zoom. We can see each other, and this has become the norm of business communication over the last three months. And it's also was it's shown that we can stay connected, and there is a sense of humanization between us because we have visual context and we can react to visual cues, we're still separated. So how, you know, we're talking about, let's go back to what you said about we're all intrinsically a community. Why is that even important? Well, it's always important, first of all. It takes on, in my opinion, even more significant dimensions right now. But an organization is a community and should be thought about that way. Um, there is a guy by the name of uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi who invented the idea of flow in organizations and so on. And he said the role of business organizations is to increase the well-being of humanity. Uh, and that's and again the business isn't part of the community it is the bloody community uh 80 of us work in businesses at at, at any rate but take about the COVID thing um you said something about you and i and our conversation put in hard-nosed research terms uh and it's as hard a bunch of research as you'd ever find body language is eight times more important than what you say and so relative to this new way of work from home and the way I've had a bunch of people say to me, what's the secret to work for home from home uh, for the employee or for the boss? And I said, the number one secret is anybody who tells you a secret. There's a secret is a liar. Uh, there is a key word and the key word is experiment. Uh, we need to learn how to humanize things. Is there, you know, should we always start off with the agenda? Should we always go around and talk and ask how things are going? I said, there ain't no always. 
uh, you for your personality, you for your group's personality. You got to, you got to, you've got to laugh about it. You've got to say, this is a totally new context. Let me assure you, and, and this is key, this kind of thing. Let me assure you as your boss that I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. And God, is that a powerful statement? I mean, you know, it, it's, it obviously can be taken in a million ways, but so many, so many bosses think they have to act like what they think a boss is that, you know, Simon Legree and the steel mills and the Ford Motor Company plants of a, of a hundred years ago. Uh, and, and so it is constant experimentation. I, I've got a, I've got a, uh, I hope not bore everybody to death, but I have to read something that won't take very long. Please. Uh, and I came across this on Twitter and then followed, chased it down. In Boardman, Oregon, there is an organization called Blue Mountain Community College. And like all educational institutions, it's going through the same darn things as Cisco is at some level and so on. Uh, in mid-April, they sent a memo out to their employees. Uh, and it's six points, very quick to read. You are not quote unquote, working from home, unquote. You are at your home during a crisis trying to work. Two, your personal physical, mental, and emotional health is extremely important right now. First and foremost, take care of yourself. Three, you should not try to compensate for lost productivity by working longer hours. Four, be kind to yourself and don't judge how you are coping based on how you see others are coping. Five, be kind to others and don't judge others in how they are coping based on how you are coping. Six, success will not be measured the same way it was when things were normal. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to, 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 to write to a group of people who are faculty members, they're people who work in the college's finance department. It, it tells you to be a human, uh, spend whatever time you need to take care of your 83-year-old mother who you know, lives 10 miles away and she's by herself and she doesn't have support. Spend time to do whatever you need to do with your kids. Uh, and, and I've always felt for decades that there's actually a positive catch-22. If you behave that way toward people, they will be more productive. And they will care more about what they're doing. I was, I was saying in some little Twitter exchange yesterday, I said, a lefty is a people-focused softy. And a righty is a profit maximizer. What a joke. The way that you maximize profits is to be a people softy and take care of people. And this damn dichotomy, you know, I'm talking about the political part of it, which is obviously much worse, uh, is, is just, it really traps us. Yeah. Well, it, it leads me to the to, to part of the, to think about the joke that came out of the pandemic is all of a sudden we were hearing from companies that we hadn't heard of for from years telling us how much they cared. And because everyone was racing out to get the message. And if you happen to be, if you bought flowers from somebody, or if you booked a ticket from someone, all of a sudden you're still on their mail list and they're flooding you with these, these very, um, eerily similar messages like they were crafted in some factory and and even this morning um i'm uh, a marketing friend of mine at uh 
at ID, uh, IDC, he pushed out and he goes, there is this template for the type of message that companies are supposed to, it says put brand name here and it gives the message of sympathy, you know, empathizing with the protesters, calling for social justice, et cetera, we care. It, you know, why is it that companies are so afraid, in your estimation, you've seen a lot of this, why are they so afraid to actually be human? That they come across as being so legalistic, you know, to conform to some legalistic and whether it's about they don't want, they're too afraid of damaging their brands or they're too afraid of, of incurring some liability. Why isn't that they just can't do what you just said, just be human? I don't know. <laughs> no, right, no. Well, we're I, done now. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious to you and it's obvious to me and I've spent 40 years saying it and some people have listened and taken it aboard. And a lot of people haven't. Uh, there was a, a little thing that I used in a book, and I've forgotten what the title of the book was or the author's name, which is embarrassing, but it doesn't matter. He was a consultant, and he was sitting with the CEO of a company, and it was one of their uh, half-year reviews, and their results were fabulous. And these teams were reporting on how they had used teamwork and how they had done these things and people had been terrific. And the writer turns to the CEO and he said, all this stuff just makes sense. He said, why don't other CEOs do this? And the CEO returned to him and he said, I think they're embarrassed. And you know, it's a non-trivial statement. Uh, I have been on the case of business schools for 40 years. And I've been on the case of business schools because they pretend that life is spreadsheets and art marketing algorithms. Businesses are human institutions. Well, business schools and all professional schools for that matter. Somebody asked me about mission statements once and I said, well, I'm not very keen on mission statements because they're written by the top 20 executives who went to an off-site meeting, got shit-faced drunk, sat around, and wrote some things on a tablet, and then printed it and gave it out and handed it out to 10,000 people. It's, well, I don't know. Well, tell, tell me this. It, it is fundamental human stuff. Uh, two little examples. Uh, and everybody who's listening to us has seen these as well. Some pretty famous television person is sitting at their home, as they do now, with whatever the backdrop is, and their six-year-old comes in. And they push the six-year-old out of the way, because after all, they're talking about Russia and spy satellites. Alternatively, somebody who's just as powerful and important has on, you know, with the, with the cameras on, as his three or four year old come into the scene carrying a little bucket of baby poop to show dad, you know, which for those of those who are listening to us who have kids. And so the guy on the screen, he said, he said, you know, Jimmy, that's, that is wonderful. He said, I'm going to see if I can get your mom to come in, but he puts his arm around Jimmy. I don't know that he put his hand into the poop, but, but I mean, I said to somebody, this totally for the rest of their lives of the viewers humanizes this guy yeah i am going to listen to you talk about russia and elections with 20 times the intensity because you brought your kid in 
and showed the entire audience his little pile of poop. Suddenly, you're a credible human being. Suddenly, we are communicating at a, at a deep human level. Uh, and maybe you didn't have to be as bad as the first guy who just pushed the kid out of the way. But, you know, you, when the kid came, you didn't push him out of the way because he wasn't on the screen, but you, you demonstrated your annoyance. Uh, I mean, it's stupid from a practical standpoint. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do public speaking for an awful lot of my living. I've done 3,000 speeches. And I said to somebody, whether it's a two-hour speech or a 15-minute speech, I always spend the first five or six minutes getting to know the audience and talking to them about, you know, what's going on in Toledo today and what's going on in the world. And I always come into the room where the speech is going to be a half an hour early. Let's say it's in a, you know, 600 people in a hotel ballroom. And I spend a half an hour just talking to people, you know, and, and, and I'm trying to have a, make a message that is a business message and it's focused on these things, but I've got them by the hearts and minds. If I, if I make friends and we don't teach it in business schools, we don't select for it. Uh, there's a little story that I read that came from a community health group near the University of Pennsylvania. And in this community care group, their turnover was 77%, okay? Annual turnover. They changed their, they changed their hiring practices. Uh, they de-emphasized the technical skills. They wildly emphasized listening, empathy, and so on. And two out of every three people who are listening to me are not going to believe what I'm going to say, and I'm sorry, I can't help that. Um, their annual turnover went from 77% to 1.7%. And the hospitalizations of their, it isn't patients, but the hospitalizations of the people that they care for dropped by 45%. And it was just, well, there's the, I'm so pissed off that I couldn't get it in time for the excellence dividend. There's a, and this is specific to your audience in a way. It was a, a, a report about Google research. Google looked for the attributes of their top employees, okay? Uh, and they came up with eight attributes. And I don't have the list in front of me. But eight attributes in the top seven were soft things. Listens, is respectful to other people, and so on. And then they did one, same idea, some of the same evaluation, but now, we're, now we are evaluating innovative teams. And Google is one of those, maybe some people who are listening to us are, in which case I don't give a damn what I'm about to say, one of those stupid organizations that grades people as A players and B players, which is the world's most guaranteed way to, in fact, demotivate 50.000% of your employees. Anyway, so they've got these teams working on projects with A players and B players. The B player teams outperformed the A players. They were much more innovative. Why? Because if you're innovating, it kind of helps to listen to other people and develop other perspectives. And the one that didn't surprise me, and you know, again, relative to our tech audience, A, I lived in Palo Alto for 30 years, and B, I went to Stanford. Uh, 
the number one attribute as to why the A-team screwed up, screwed up was too much bullying. And boy, do I know that. You know, you come out of Stanford, your IQ is measurably 317. You are well aware that you are the smartest human being God ever put on earth. And I'm going to make you aware that I'm that person. And I'm obviously, you know, amplifying it by a big factor, but it was clear. B teams better than A teams because they listen, they respect, they engage. And, uh, and, and, and why don't we get that? So if I'm hearing you correctly, is that it sounds as though you're saying that, that leaders need both businesses as, as entities and the leaders within those organizations need more empathy that they need to be in. And frankly, I would say they probably also need to be get over whatever fear they may have uh, of being wrong. I, I, I think that, yeah. you know, that you're right. I'm listening to you and yeah, we've all met that person. Um, and you know, that not only I worked at McKinsey, I met him by the millions. <laughs> I think that actually is a requirement, right? Uh, <laughs> McKinsey. Well, the funny thing about McKinsey, and I'm not going to interrupt you anymore because of what you're saying is important. The joke at McKinsey is who are the leaders of McKinsey? The least awful people, people. <laughs> well, I think that's the, to the point though, is that, you know, what do we, what do we need from our leaders now? Whether we're talking about our business leaders or we're talking about our communal leaders or our political leaders, it seems to me is that, that there is a, there's this not an inclination towards needing to be right but this race to always go to safe ground that, you know, I will, we're not going to be perceived as weak. We're not going to be perceived as being incorrect or out of position. We're not going to be judged by our stakeholders. You know, knows is that, you know, we're, we're too reactionary to the street as it is, but is it, does it come down to just empathy? The, when you were talking about extreme humanization that are, that we need to be more empathetic towards our fellow human beings. It's a huge part of it. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Peter Miller, and I may get the pronunciation wrong, but he runs a middle-sized uh, biotech company called Optinos. And this conversation took place, not with me. And he said, our secret to success is we only hire nice people. All jobs. And he said, let me tell you a secret, and this is so critical to the people who are listening to us. He said, give me the most obscure degree you've ever heard of. Some molecular biology, he said, guess what? There are a lot of people in the world who have that degree. Don't hire the assholes. And, you know, because, well, and, and talking about our leaders and so on, and he has a trick um, in the best sense of that word. I'm that guy with a 300 IQ, 4.2 grade point average since kindergarten. Uh, and I'm sitting down with uh, Mr. Miller, and oh my God, am I qualified and incredible. And Mr. Miller would give his eye teeth to seal the deal and hire me on the spot. Well, there's a problem. I have to, and this is his term, not my term, when I finish talking to the CEO or the head of recruiting or the head of R&D, I've got to do what they call run the gauntlet. And run the gauntlet means 10 to 15, 5 to 10 minute interviews with the receptionist, with the house cleaner, with the mid-level woman in finance department, and so on. And the secret is, as much as I'm in love with you, 
every single one of those people has the right to, to ding me and say, no, we're not going to employ you. And what he says, which is the missing link that you and I are talking about now, is he said, because what I've learned is one, one bad apple can uh, ruin the bushel when it comes to the culture of the organization. So, yeah, I mean, my, my, the two things I want to say in this regard, because people of all different organizational sizes are represented, this is unequivocal. The number one asset of every organization is the full collection of first-line supervisors. 75% of people are unhappy at work. It doesn't matter whether the company is honest or dishonest, rich or poor. 75% of the people are unhappy at work and 90% of that is unhappiness with their boss. My smart ass line is any idiot can be an effective vice president. Being an effective first line supervisor and, you know, by the way, guess who understands this best? the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps. You know, there's a one-liner, which is true. The sergeants run the Army. Yep. Uh, I was in the Navy. The chief petty officers run the Navy. I went to Vietnam, landed in the middle of the night. Uh, commanding officer gets all us wet behind the ears, junior officers together. And he says, boys, I want you to have a good deployment. And he said, there is a way to have a good deployment for you junior officers. You do whatever the hell your chief petty officer tells you to do. You know, in theory, I'm an officer and a gentleman, and the chief reports to me. But it's a first-line supervisor. There is no issue that the number one promotion criterion for any first-line supervisorial job, from housekeeping to the sexiest part of R&D, should be empathy. Yeah. It should be demonstrated. You know, one of, one of the ways that this um, community service company uh, does their selection process is they have, you know, some casual meetings where candidates come together. Main thing they're looking for is, is he a listener? Well, here's one that's right near the top of my list. Um, virtually every list of top healthcare organizations in the United States has the Mayo Clinic you know, number one or number two, and certainly no more than number three. Uh, and we'll go back to that interview process. You are Mr. Super Hot Shit Surgeon, and you're interviewing for a job at Mayo. And you sit down with me, and we have a half an hour conversation, and little do you know that down where you can't see me, either with my electronic device or a piece of paper with a pencil, I am counting. And what I am counting throughout this interview, and I know how simple-minded this sounds, but I hope people will listen because it is true. What I am counting is the number of times, quantitatively, that you use the word I and the number of times that you use the word we. And if the I's beat out the we, if you are surgeon otherwise known as God, you ain't going to get employed here. And the reason Mayo is number one in part is Dr. Mayo back in 1914 uh, pronounced that Mayo was all going to be all about team medicine. And you know anybody who knows the world of uh, you know doctors and so on knows that that's not exactly the centerpiece. But 
Yeah, empathy, 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 demonstrated listening skills. Buy a copy of the best business book of the century to date, which is Susan Cain's book with a one-word title, Quiet, in which she tells us that we're complete idiots because we overlook introverts. And she shows us a ton of research that says if you are an extrovert, you are considered smarter, more creative, more physically attractive. And, and because introverts do these really strange things. I mean, you're, you're interviewing somebody and you ask a question. The extrovert has got the canned answer that he's been practicing for the last 72 hours. The introvert stops and does this, does this outrageous thing, thinks before she or he opens her mouth. And again, the practical world says, when you stop to think, the practical translation in the world is, I think that means you're dumb because you didn't have an answer. I mean, obviously, you know, that's not true, but it is true in what you see in terms of the hiring patterns. Empathy, empathy, empathy. Hire nice people. Uh, Southwest Airlines was in employee hires. We look for listening, caring, smiling, and saying thank you. And this holds as much for the pilots and the mechanics as it does for the people who are, you know, the, the flight attendants and so on, which I really love because I remember one time I was at, Wash at uh, Reagan Airport in Washington, and I was going somewhere, and I saw a bunch of, you know, of mechanics on the, on, the, you know, on the ground, and they were, you know, bitching and moaning, and I thought, oh, I hope these guys aren't having a shitty day. I really want a mechanic who's just feeling pretty good. I mean... The answer is technical excellence, of course, but the way the technical excellence is applied so that I see you screw up, and we've been together for years, and I see you screw up, and I say, ah, sure, that's exactly right. You know, and that's a function of attitude, not your technical training. Yeah. You know, you, the Chris Rock actually you know, said something about that, about uh, saying that what happened in, in Minneapolis is just a result of you know, a couple of bad apples and it's like some professions, you know, can't afford bad apples pilots. You can't just say we crash because, you know, it's just a bad apple, you know, you know, and it's something, there's something to all that, right. Is that you, there well, totally to be- it's, it's, there are experiments that have worked and experiments that haven't worked, but 15 or 20 years ago around the U S there was an idea that was introduced called community policing. And one piece of that was to get the cops out of the cars and onto the streets and into the little shops. Uh, if you want a safe, if you want a safe arena, you want a place where the store owners and their employees and the cops are on the same side. Uh, and I, I've been wondering about this. I'm wondering if there's a different. <laughs> I have in my mind this thing, which is total baloney because I don't know what I'm talking about. I have in mind, relative to police violence, 75 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago in New York City, where all the cops were second generation Irish immigrants. And I bet there was a lot less violence from Irish immigrant cops who were not full of themselves and didn't wear body armor. And when they ran into a civilian, even if he was acting a little weak, did you see that thing with the I guess it was the Atlanta problem, where if you're a black guy and 
you do anything that looks slightly unusual, like have a popsicle in your hand, the assumption is you stole it. And there was some brilliant guy who, a white guy, who literally went home, got a television set of his that was pretty new looking, and he carried the television down, set down the street with body language that said, you know, nobody stopped him. Nobody paid the slightest bit of attention. Or if they did, they probably said, what the hell are you carrying a television down the street? Can I give you a hand? Uh, and, and, uh, and that has everything in the world to do relative to police. I want those, I want those Irish cops. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of violence yeah. in the for one of the things, Tom, I, I think about frequently, and, you know, I follow you on Twitter, and you and I engage on Twitter, you know, periodically, um, you know, and I'm more, let's say, more of a centrist to your, to your, you know, to your left leanings, but still in the, in the same, you know, same area of the spectrum, this notion of giving back. And, you know, and we're thinking about businesses as being not only a community, but also part of a community what is it that we should be doing? What is it that's that, you know, particularly because we're in an age now where technology is as much bringing people together and driving them apart at the same time. What is it that, that we as business leaders should be thinking about doing in terms, in terms of facilitating this conversation, making people more human, just being more human? I'm going to try to talk about it, but you triggered the necessity of me reading you six words that, that I came across in the last couple of days. It was a discussion of some of the Facebook issues that are going on right now. And I hope all of our tech friends are listening and I'm not trying to insult you. Facebook, they were talking about, listen to the six words, society crushing pursuit of monetized rage. That is a powerful six words, and it is true. Uh, anyway, I um, ask the question again. I got this. Well, no, no, it's it's fine because look, it, no, no, I mean it's just, but I was I was so devastated by that. But look, because there, it's true. Yeah, no, but I mean, there's there's a there, we're dealing with these the, these competing these competing interests or these competing positions. On one hand, you have some people like as I said, Chuck Robbins getting out in front of this saying, Here, right. Um, you know, here's, you know, we, we need to, we need to support this. We need to understand this. We need to heal from this. And on the other hand, you know, relative to the pandemic, you have guys like Mark Zuckerberg who says, you know, who's, I'm not even going to get into the, 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 the filtering of what gets on Facebook or not. I'm just going to say, right. you know, we recognize work from home is going to be a thing and you need to tell us where you're going to live because we may reduce your salary. That was unbelievable. I mean, it's like the short course in how to demotivate 200,000 people in one sentence. Yeah. Uh, but the instinct, uh, the instinct to do, the, I mean, the, the, the other one that was not quite as insensitive as that uh, was something I saw. There's the Amazon guy who runs the warehouses. Mm. And let's forget whether you know, the practices are, are, you know, out of the dark ages or not. Somebody asked him something about how many people had, you know, been diagnosed with COVID-19. He said, well, he said, well, you know, I'm not really interested in numbers like that. 
Now, probably statistically, he had a point in some way. But to publicly say, eh, I'm not really interested in the number of cases that we've got going. How could you do that? Yeah. What is, why didn't your mother and father step in? But I believe with 85 or 90% accuracy, we can find a way to not hire those people in the first place and never, ever promote them. Uh, the, you know, the relative to that, um, <laughs> I just, I don't like labels. I will admit to being left of center, but not by much. Uh, Back in the old days, uh, until I don't know when, I always figured politically that if you look at a bell-shaped curve, 85% of us were no more than a fingertip away from the rest, and the tails were freaks from the left and freaks from the right, none of whom I'd really want to invite for dinner. And literally, that this distribution has changed dramatically. It's flattened, and we got huge tails and a, and a, and a small, uh, relatively small center. Uh, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist slash author, summed up all of life, and left, right, and center, David was a good conservative Republican, and now he's an independent like George Will, an independent is lovely. Uh, my wife is an independent, even though she's so bloody liberal, it's not even funny. Um, Brooks, in one of the best columns or whatever I've ever read, distinguished between what he called resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtue is I went to Cornell and got two degrees, and then I went to Stanford and got two degrees, which is actually the fact in, in my case. It is, I was promoted seven times and became the youngest vice president in Cisco Systems, or a place that only has 300 employees. Uh, eulogy virtues are what they say about you at your funeral. Uh, and what they say about you at your funeral is fundamentally, what kind of a woman was she? What kind of a guy was did she go out of, did he go out of her way, his way, to help other people? That's the case. I, I have a slide in my slide presentations. My ex-wife was a tombstone maker, and so as I like to say to people, I've seen more tombstones than you have. And so I have a picture of a tombstone, and on it, it says, Joseph L. Jones, date, date. 17,326,582 dollars and 11 cents. Net worth the day the market, the hour the market closed on the day that he died. You've never seen the tombstone with anybody's net worth on it. And as far, you know, even the Carnegies for God's sakes. Uh, and it's a, it's a non-trivial point. And it's so, this may sound like rhetorical excess, but I don't think it is, and it's what we've been talking about in this whole discussion. Your value as a leader, as a human being, will significantly be driven by what you've done in the next two months and what you do in the next six months. This is when the Martians landed and how did you respond? I mean, this is it, my dear friends, male, female, tech, non-tech. This is 
you know, I'm not a very religious guy. I was raised a Presbyterian, but I don't darken very many church doors. Uh, this is Judgment Day with a capital J. And, you know, you can like it or you can not like it, but this is the point in your life when the eulogy attributes scoreboard is being kept. And ain't nobody going to say, wow, uh, he was able to get through the COVID-19 situation and they only had a 3% uh, reduction in revenue. Or, I mean, you know, I'm willing, by the way, and I know it's only on paper, I'm willing to be called a leftist if you say that I was distressed a couple of days ago when I saw that between the two of them, Zuckerberg and Bezos' net worth had gone up by $60 billion in the last 60 days. That, I don't think it makes me a commie to say, not have a little problem with that. Yeah. I mean, something is out of whack on the inequality scale, and you know, anybody in their right mind, right, left, or center, knows that we can't live with it societally. Yeah. There's a lot of rage. We're watching one form of rage right this minute. Uh, we watched, you know, no discussion here of Donald Trump, but he tapped into an unexpressed rage. Period. All stop. Beginning of the story, middle of the story, end of the story. I laugh about it, not in a laughing way, as a lifelong Democrat, because my comment is, who elected Trump? The Roosevelt Democrats. You know, the, the, the middle class people that Roosevelt, Roosevelt had in the Democratic Party who have been totally neglected for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, and they were pissed off. And I completely understand that. I'm not happy with the outcome, but I understand the phenomenon. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. And I, think, you know, uh, and I think that there's something about, about that, Tom, that is, that is real is that because of the way that businesses are so focused on specific segments of the market, politicians are only focused on that five to 10% of the electorate that will get them elected, that there is not enough of what we would call community building. So, so Tom, we're going to end it on that note. Uh, it's as always great having you here. Uh, great having you on. It's always a good discussion with you. Well, it's, it's a great pleasure. And, you know, I think if you went back and looked at the tape of this, one of my throwaway lines is to understand what I've been trying to say for the last 43 years, you don't need two degrees from Stanford and two degrees from Cornell. All you need is a signed certificate that says you graduated from the fourth grade. Words to live by. Thank you, Tom. That's all the time we have for this edition of Pod 2112. I want to thank our guests, again, the incomparable Tom Peters. If you haven't read any of his books, please do. I highly recommend them. Uh, I also want to thank all of you for joining us on Pod 2112, a production of the 2112 Group. 2112 is a leading provider of research, strategy, development, and enablement services for B2B technology and manufacturing companies around the world. For more information about how 2112 can help your business, visit our website at the2112group.com. And, you know, if you haven't done so, you know, please subscribe to Pod 2112 on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get it. And thanks again for listening to Pod 2112. Until next time, I'm Larry Walsh.